Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. This is a podcast about people who, on the surface, appear to be totally ordinary. Scratch the surface and you find out they have amazing stories and ideas. Pamela Carl has done a lot of incredible things. Raised in California, she went to college at the University of Redlands. Then she joined FOCUS, which is the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. She had to fundraise her own salary. And then she came to Kansas City. And then she decided to get a master's degree. So what? We might say 4% of all American people have a master's degree. But Pam's best option happened to be in Italy. And all the courses were, get this, in Italian. So she had to learn a third language. And she had to do it within 10 months. And she had to know it well enough to move overseas take master's level courses in this third language. Those stories themselves are incredible, but Pam's adventures are not done. She then returned to Kansas City, but when one of her family members faced a health crisis, she moved back to Redlands, where she worked for Elon Musk's company, Solar City, which is now, I guess, a part of Tesla. Since then, she's moved to Bluebird, a company that supplied school buses since 1927. Pam knows a ton about learning languages. She also knows about moving around the country, moving out of the country, and then moving back when her family needs her. And she's learned a ton about sales. And she has a really cool ambition. And ultimately, I want to ask her about when you need to reinvent yourself and how to do it. So here's Pam. Hi, Pam. Hi, I'm Tim. Happy to be here. Good to, to talk with you today. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Was I right? Do you speak three languages? I do, yes. Yeah. So Spanish, uh, English, and Italian. Okay, so which one came first? So Spanish came first. Uh, my parents are originally from Mexico, so Spanish was our home language. Um, and, you know, reading, speaking, writing, everything was, was Italian, or sorry, in Spanish at home. Okay, okay. So then how about English? When did you pick up English? So English, um, when I went to school um, back in the 90s um, in Southern California, there, there was a large influx of immigrants that came to California. So a lot of these kids were struggling with having full immersion English. So they had uh, teachers that would offer the instruction material in Spanish um, with the intent of you transitioning to English. So I would say in about third grade, is when my teachers noticed that I was speaking, you know, some words here and there in English. So, you know, I would say eight, nine years old when I was, you know, playing around with a little bit with the English words. When did, but to me, you are just a zillion percent fluent in English. And when I met you, you were reading long, thick books that were in English. And uh, you were just more articulate than a lot of people that I knew. Uh, How did you get so good at English? So... You know, I, for me, I've just always had a knack for, for languages. I love it. You know, I love learning new words. And I think, you know, in third and fourth grade, I was struggling with, with English. So our teacher, uh, when I did transition to full English, she would keep me during recess time to give me more personal, personal, uh, attention and guidance. And that helped a lot. But I honestly, I mean, those early years, I was just reading a ton and, 
I just enjoyed it. Um, and that helped a lot um, with continuing to learn the language. And it's, it's true what they say. I think when you're younger, you, you tend to pick up things a little bit faster. I want to ask you about, I guess, tools and tricks for learning languages, maybe in just a little bit. Um, I, sure. But first, I just want to talk about Italian. Uh, you had 10 months to learn Italian. It, it just blows my mind to this day that you said, oh, I'm moving to Rome. And <laughs> first of all, that was a big thing. And then you were like, and I can afford to do so, or I can figure out how to afford to do so. Then I was like, what are you going to do in Rome? And then you said, oh, I'm going to get a master's degree, and it's in Italian. And you didn't even speak Italian. There's just so many things just in that one thing that just kind of blow my mind. How did you, let's just start with Italian. How did you possibly think I can learn Italian in 10 months? Yeah, and, and so the program itself, the master's program, it's a full-year immersion. So you're taking about 11 courses per semester, which is insane. I mean, I, I don't know how we survived that. But um, so the, it's a full-year immersion. And, I mean, if you think about it, you really don't have a year, 10 months to learn. I mean, you have to pick it up within a matter of weeks. Um, but I would say... You know, I had friends who would tell me, hey, well, you speak Spanish and English, you're going to, this is going to be easy. So you build this confidence because everyone's patting you on the back, you're going to do a great job. Um, and so you have the initial confidence, okay, maybe I can do this. You know, if someone tells you, yeah, you can run a marathon or hey, you can try something new, you have the initial confidence and then the after part is the disaster part <laughs> and then the... The, the ramifications of that decision and then the the joy it is when you actually break through and you actually learn the language. So, um, but yeah, it was definitely a journey to, to learn Italian. What was the typical day of studying like? Sure. So, um, as I mentioned, it was 11 courses per semester and I would say the first month it uh, was very overwhelming. Um, you go to class essentially from 8 a.m. to sometimes 9 p.m. with some breaks since you have evening classes. So it was full immersion Italian, and um, you have in the, in the afternoon, you have just in, Italian instruction if you did not know the language before you came to the country. So um, I had my dictionary. That was my first basic tool. I would take that at class. And when I would hear a professor say one or two words all the time, that's when I would catch on and say, okay, let me look it up in my Italian English dictionary. And then it was words like the, therefore. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, this is what I'm catching. I'm not even catching content, but just basic words. So that's where I started. Oh my gosh. I, I am just wondering, do they speak any English or Spanish in these classes or do they just throw you into the deep end of the pool? Pretty much the deep end, yeah. So these professors, um, you know, they're from all over the, the world. And, you know, most of them are from Europe, so Poland, Spain. Um, so a lot of them, they do know the language. They do know English, but most of them feel com confident with Italian. So they had some limited English that I was able to communicate. I would say 90% of the time they spoke in Italian. Okay, so what do you think was the most effective thing you did before you arrived in Italy? 
Sure. So the most effective thing I would say is I bought an Italian um, instruction book and I learned the basics, you know, counting, um, thank you, just basic commands. And then I did meet an Italian when I lived in Kansas City. So we would meet one-on-one a couple of times a week just to get some help from him. Um, I would say the best thing I did, however, was making sure I had connections for when I arrived in this country that I was going to live in a year. So I knew of one American who was uh, studying in the seminary and this one Italian friend. That's all I had for connections. And that was the best thing I could have ever done. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I kind of want to just ask this question. And I guess I'm not trying to be controversial, but... I, I hope I'm not, but I am thinking in high school, people take four years of Spanish and then afterward they say, I, I, I didn't really learn any Spanish or they take four years of French or I, I just heard people kind of dog on programs like Duolingo and Rosetta Stone and all these different things. And it just sort of makes me think, are we doing this wrong in the United States when we teach somebody a second or a third language? Are we just, because here... Yes, it was painful, but you could go over there and pick up a master's degree uh, in 10 months in a third language. It just, it's making me think that maybe we're doing this wrong. You know, I it, i did meet people in Europe and my classmates who spoke English, who spoke, you know, Polish or whatever language. And then they spoke Italian. I thought to myself, oh my God. Gosh, you know, three, four languages. I mean, that's just amazing. And, you know, in a lot of other countries, people are taught English um, and they, they're taught the value of it. I think in the U.S. there is more, um, there's more schools now that are offering English and Spanish um, education. And I think that's beneficial because we're seeing such a change in our country. So I think starting early is beneficial but seeing what is the value in you learning a new language um, and trying to find ways of other than just formal instruction in a classroom, how can you learn the language and reap the benefits of it? You know, when I go to the grocery store, do I try to talk to, you know, the cashier or at a restaurant or wherever? If, they, if I hear someone speaking Italian or Spanish, I try to take advantage of those opportunities. Okay, so I, I guess my, my last question on languages would be as, uh, gosh, what have I left out question-wise? What should I have asked? Or, if you know, like that question, if somebody were going to imitate what you did and try to learn a language, any language, within 10 months, what would you recommend? I recommend if, I mean, it's for some people or most people, it's not going to be feasible to move to another country, you know, if they have a job or a family, it's just not feasible for them to do that. Uh, the next best thing I would say is, okay, what language do you want to learn? It doesn't have to be Italian, it doesn't have to be Spanish, what language? And find a community in your town or a group that uh, speaks that language. You know, when I moved back to California, there was a meetup, I'm sure you're familiar with meetup. And there was a group in my town that wanted to meet up and speak in Italian. And I went there and I was connected with people who either wanted to learn or who were from Italy and just practice. Um, I would say, you know, find a community and 
if this is really important for you, just dedicate an hour a week or whatever time you have to just immerse yourself for that one hour and listen and speak as much as that language as we possibly can. Um, I think personally it's rewarding when you're not just in a classroom and being taught the language. It's rewarding when you meet a face and you see the reactions and you you feel that reward in yourself when you actually get to say a word and they under, understand what you just said. <laughs> you know, okay, so I was in Guatemala and I was there with a bunch of people who, for the most part, only spoke English and maybe had some high school Spanish and I had some high school Spanish. And we were there for 10 days. And I would say for the first three days, everybody was just terrified to try to speak Spanish. Uh, even people who had had like three or four years of Spanish. And honestly, the number one fear was they're going to make fun of us. Our Spanish is going to be so bad and they're going to make fun of us. And the thing is, is once we actually got over it, nobody made fun of me whatsoever. For the next seven days, people just seemed maybe a little pleased that I was actually trying to speak a little Spanish. The only guy made fun of me was I stopped in a coffee shop and I tried to order a coffee and there was this guy at the bar who was completely drunk. And I said the wrong things in Spanish, and then he started laughing at me completely. But he was completely drunk. So I, I just would say absolutely nobody made fun of me. And what, what was your experience in Italy? You're exactly right. I think the first thing that people think of is I'm going to sound like an idiot, and I'm going to be made fun of. So you get a good dose of humility um, as far as, okay, I'm not perfect at this and it's a good dose of humility and I can't tell you how many times my peers corrected me where I was saying the wrong thing and it was it's you know it was it was hard but I was underneath it all I was so thankful that I was corrected because then I would enhance my my skills in the language um, people really appreciated having an American come to Italy and not speak English, you know, because a lot of times my you know, Italian peers would say, oh, you Americans, you want us to cater this to you all the time. And they would joke about it. But I think they were really humbled in return that I really did the best that I could in, in those 10 months to just aggressively pick up my skills. I had one short interaction when I first arrived to Italy with a with the seminarian, he was Italian, and he met me before I knew the language. We met, we crossed paths four months later when I was living in Italy, we were crossing the street. He was going one direction, I was going the opposite direction. And I said hello to him, I was running late for class, I said something in Italian, and he was just taken aback. He's like, what, how did you learn, you know, four months ago? So. Anyway, those interactions were rewarding, but people don't think you sound silly if you're trying. They love it when you do, honestly. They, they, they think you should try as much as you can. So I would say go for it. That's awesome. Let me ask just a few lightning round questions on language. Uh, so immersion is the most effective way. You would say that, that that is basically true? Yes, I believe that, yes. Okay, so how about picking up a book in Spanish, maybe a very simple book, and just trying to learn Spanish, trying to read Spanish, uh, compare that to immersion. Sure. So I do believe that there is value in picking up a book. We do need, you know, the rules and the grammar, and that helps um, understanding the formula, if you will, for, for the language. 
Um, some people are visual learners. So reading something, they just pick it up really quick. You know, I have friends who, when I was in focus, learned Spanish by just sitting in class and learning the language. So there is a benefit. I think if you can do both the immersion and the in-classroom instruction, you, you do get, I think, even more of a benefit. Okay. Uh, how about listening to the radio or maybe watching a television program? So for me, that's where I come in. I think the, uh, um, the audio portion of learning a language, I could hear the laughter. I could hear the tone. I could sense a little bit of the context. So that's, I think, where I learned the most um, is just listening. And if I hear a, a, a word over and over again, it would pique my curiosity. I'd say, okay, why do I hear this word all the time? And that's when I would pull out my dictionary and say, okay, what is this? So picking up words that are maybe commonly used in that language is, is also beneficial. Okay. And uh, I guess finally, any thoughts on Duolingo or Rosetta Stone? You know, I think anything is better than nothing if you want to pick up any language, um, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever time you have, whether you're commuting or, you know, have a meeting and have five minutes before the meeting. Uh, my husband uses Duolingo for Spanish. He does speak Spanish, um, but he does want to pick up some words. And sometimes he says, I correct him too much. So he'd rather go to Duolingo and get a thumbs up or a five stars because he did a perfect job according to Duolingo. <laughs> <laughs> That's so Duolingo to boost your confidence, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's, let's uh, go back to just what an adventure Italy was. Um, so the classes are all in Italian. They're master's level. Uh, which, what school did you go to? So I attended John Lateran University. It's in Rome. Um, and the university has different majors. So you have people who are studying to become lawyers, some people teachers, and, you know, like me, studying marriage and family. Okay. Um, and then just what was that like, just taking master's level courses in a language you had just learned? It was amazing and horrible at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you're learning theology, you're learning canon law, you're learning um, bioethics, philosophy. I mean, courses that I didn't take in my undergrad, let alone in a new language. But I think once I broke through, I would say the first month, I just jotted down words. My professors would teach, and I just jotted down words because I didn't understand the content. And I remember sitting in my canon law class, and I started writing notes. And I think it took me about a month for me to get the gist of what my professor was saying. And that was a breakthrough moment for me. And it made it worthwhile just going through through the big hurdles of learning the language. If I didn't understand what was going on in the class for a month, and, and I was I was just a total nerd. I double majored. All I did was school. But if I, if I didn't understand something for a total month, I, I would just be in dire worry that I'm going to flunk this class. What were I, your thoughts? I felt the exact same sentiment. I had... Three more months before the oral exams would come and you sit in front of your professor and they could pick any topic that they talked about those four months and just drill you on it. And I was terrified 
So, um, you know, I was a full-time student. I wasn't a tourist in Italy, but um, it really just, I had to focus on learning as fast as I could. But again, you know, I had classmates who, um, who spoke English. So when I needed help translating, they would help with that. But I was definitely terrified how I would survive. Um, but it, it also makes you realize in this country, Tim, that there's a lot of people that come to this country not knowing the language and um, how they manage to start a business, you know, how they manage to go to college. It's just kind of a sink and swim, sink or swim, you know, environment, if you will. Maybe, yeah, maybe I don't, if we go to any country, maybe that's the case. I mean, if I move to France or if I move to Japan and I try to survive, then maybe it's sink or swim. I just, that's really powerful for you to say. I just had never really thought about that before, but that probably is the case. Um, so what was yeah. the very first class that you took? Do you remember? Oh, absolutely. Tim, I didn't even know where my university was. I, I didn't know what I was doing once I got there. Let's be honest. Um, so I had, uh, a gentleman that lived in the community. It was a lake community. Um, and he told me where my university was. So he walked me over and asked where my class was. I mean, I literally felt like I was in elementary school and my dad was taking me to class the first day. And so I sat there. It was a Polish professor who was teaching philosophy who had met and who knew St. John Paul II. I mean, what? so he had, yeah, so he had experience and, and, and had connection, you know, a relationship with St. John Paul II years prior. And he was asking everyone to go around and introduce themselves. And I just freaked out. I couldn't even introduce myself. <laughs> so yes, I remember the first day very well. <laughs> oh my gosh. So you wanted to quit? Absolutely. I was, I wanted to cry after that class and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I was in utter shock. I didn't know anyone in my classroom and it was, terrifying feeling yeah <laughs> were, say the least were, were you lonely then when you maybe lonely in class but were you also lonely outside of class um I would say the first couple of days I did feel lonely because I didn't know anyone and I didn't know my classmates and but at the same time I lived in a community where lay students from all over the world come to Italy to study um and so we lived right in this community, um, right next to the Coliseum, which was amazing. And we would have dinners together. We all shared every evening what we were learning in our different universities, you know. So it was it was a uh, very consoling to have community in the midst of feeling, you know, several miles away from my home country. Well, that's that must have been something of a relief. Um, what is really different? about Italy compared to, I don't know, California or compared to America? Oh, man, there's so many different things. So I would say to start in the academic sense, um, it is different. At least in my university, you do oral exams. They typically don't do quizzes throughout the semester, um, projects. They didn't really do that. It was your grade hinged on how well you did for 20 minutes on that oral exam and it was terrifying. Um, but you know, your classmates, um, 
they, we all studied together. So that was similar in that sense, but the university, um, it, the cost is significantly lower than it is in the U S I don't know how much debt or any debt that Italians incur through that. So the university system is different in that regard. Um, technology wise, it sucks. <laughs> I remember the computers at the university were so old. I mean, people, it was just, I couldn't even use these computers and everything was so slow. I mean, trying to use a copy machine and I would go to the university and say, oh, it's broken. And it, they kept saying that for three weeks on end, you know, and there was no other copy machine. I mean, it was that's something unheard of, you know, for us Americans. And so that was difficult. Um, the pace is very different. So there's no sense of urgency and Italians would say, you know, they had a saying in Italian, but if you could get one thing done today, you know, on your to-do list, they'd say you're ahead of the game. And I thought to myself, one thing, like Americans have 20 items to check off on their list. So, um, it was just a very different pace, but I did love how different they were with that pace. Um, there was still time in the afternoon to grab coffee with a friend and sit there for two hours. There was time to just stroll the streets and the piazzas. Um, there was a slow pace in the midst of living in, in, in the city. And I really missed that. Well, you know, just as a typical American, I'm just wondering, how do they make enough money to eat if they can barely get one thing done per day? <laughs> you know, I thought that was interesting. I mean, I would go to government buildings or businesses and, um, you know, I just, I don't know how they manage, but you go to a restaurant, um, you sit at a table and that table is yours for the next three hours. They don't bug you, you know, you just order whatever you want. Whereas in America, hey, you know, here's the bill after 20 minutes, you know what I mean? Right. So uh, it's just, it was just different. It was interesting. That's pretty awesome. That's very awesome. <laughs> um, this is not a good comparison, but when I was in Guatemala and then came back to the United States, I just remember going through the airport and just thinking, well, I guess it's time to be an American again. Because when you're in a different place, you just pick up a very different rhythm. And the first two, three days are a little confusing. And then after a while, you start to see the magnetic pull of the place that you're in. And then by the time you get to about the seventh or the eighth day, uh, you're thinking, maybe I could live here. Maybe I could move here. Then by the time you get to about the ninth or the tenth day, everybody who's with you says, I just want some fast food. They were all going to go home and eat pizza and lie around in sweats and watch junk TV. That's what they all said that they were going to do when they came back. So yeah, just time, time to be an American again. When you came back, were you conscious in any way of feeling like a different person, feeling like a different woman? Yes, I would say because of my length of time there. So I was there for about a year. You know, it was very challenging for me to come back. I didn't have an iPhone in Italy. You know, you most Italians back in 2012, 2013 had flip phones. I mean, that was just unheard of. And so I would say the younger generation, you know, a couple here and there had iPhones. But for the most part, they were okay with flip phones. They were, you know, and there's tons of, you know, public transportation. California is really not the case. 
And so for me to come back and to assimilate, like you said, you know, to having a phone versus just a basic flip phone, having to drive a car, um, it was, it was very, um, challenging for me. I didn't want to go back to that. I think I embraced a lot of things in that culture, um, not having to have all of these things, if you will. I love taking public transportation, um, and not having to be connected to my phone all the time and just look at my surroundings and the beauty of the city. So it was very difficult coming back. Um, I didn't want to drive a car for a month. <laughs> I just wanted to walk everywhere. But then I realized if I wanted to go to Walmart, I had to walk 10 miles. So, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Quite the, quite the adjustment, I guess, from the relaxed pace back to the frenetic pace of America. Yeah. Um, so yeah. when you did come back, you are transformed in some ways. Then, then what happens? What came next in your life? Sure. So um, I got a call, I would say, the last two, three weeks of my time in Italy um, and that my sister-in-law had fallen sick. And so that was, you know, very uh, sad news and I had to make some decisions. Um, I had originally intended coming back to Kansas City and continuing to work there and be with my friends. I loved Kansas City. Um, And so I made the decision to come back to California and be with my brother who had two school-aged children and just be a support system during this big transition since we didn't see there was going to be any, you know, positive change on my sister-in-law's condition. So you, you basically came back and helped out the rest of the family. Correct. Yes. I moved back home with my mom and we tried to help these kids transition, you know, back to California. They lived in Texas at the time. So we packed up stuff, moved back to California and just helped the family out. Do you miss, I mean, I think that's very awesome that you're helping your family out, but in a way you sort of, I don't know, perhaps put a dream on hold. Uh, the dream at the time, at least, was to be a marriage counselor. Um, sure. Do you, how do you feel about that? How did you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was very difficult to put things on hold because, you know, here I am, moving from place to place and just going at my pace and tempo. And then this happens. But I think, um, you know, studying theology and marriage and family in Italy, it wasn't just an intellectual practice, but it was how do you practice that in your family? Mm -hmm. Um, And how do you, if you will, live that theology in the home? And, And so I think for me, it was good for me to be home and, yeah, I paused some academic goals and professional goals, but I think it was good for me, a good lesson for me to be at home and prioritize the family. Okay. So, I mean, you you're, you mostly ultimately lived it versus, say, I guess, just study about it in a book. Correct. Yes. Okay. Um, so then a girl's got to eat. So what did you do for a job? So I moved back. I mean, I hadn't lived in California in several years. Um, I had maybe one or two high school friends and I needed a job. So I, you know, I didn't continue studying marriage and family at the time. So I just asked friends and family, Hey, I'm back home. Here's my resume. This is what I'm looking for. So I did get a job, um, working as an academic counselor at a charter school, um, back home. It was like maybe three miles from home. So it was perfect at the time. 
how well, okay i've taught in the schools for a long time and usually they can be pretty obsessed with credentials did they look at your credentials and just say she'd be great or was there any sort of a hurdle with that um i would say you know there was some things that i could and could not do so we did have another counselor um in the school and she took on more of the curricular curriculum part um you know deciding which classes and for what periods of classes were going to be taken at and then i would meet more with the students one-on-one -on -one and take a look at how they're doing academic wise and what practical goals needed to be done to to improve so yeah there were some limitations but at the same time you know i think they saw that i was willing to help out and took a chance so don't let that limit you from what you can and cannot do maybe sometimes yeah it can't hurt to ask and one thing that i've definitely yeah. learned in the schools is in part it depends upon who's available to work and what the unemployment rate is. Uh, when unemployment is high, they would say- And you know, Coachella, sorry, yeah, so in Coachella, I mean, it's a small town and so you don't have a lot of people with masters and certain credentials. Mm -hmm. So even the pool in a particular community that you're in, they might not have those resources that they would in a bigger city. So they take a bigger chance um, with other qualified candidates. Absolutely, uh, because you have that master's degree and you're obviously very flexible and you can learn on the spot. So why not? Why not hire? <laughs> why <Yeah>. not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so then how did you wind up at Solar City? So, uh, as a mission. Focus, um, he told me, hey, have you thought about sales? like sales yeah i don't know about this um so with focus as he had mentioned earlier we fundraise 100 percent of our salary so you're meeting with parishes and families and so that sort of transcends into sales um i enjoyed working at the school but i like the idea of trying something new and me determining how much income i wanted to make in a given year and sales is one of those fields where you get to decide if you will how much you want to make. And so I applied to different sales jobs. I wasn't getting any hits. And um, I saw this company called Solar City that they were hiring and I interviewed. I had no sales experience, but again, that didn't prevent them from just trying me out, you know, so it worked out. Did you meet Elon Musk? You know, I did meet him via um, sort of like a Zoom platform, yes, which was crazy amazing, so yeah. What is he like in person or over Zoom, or were there just so many people in the meeting? What is he like? Yeah, so I, would, I think there was about 10 other people um, in this Zoom type of a meeting that we had, and, um, you know, people who were working in Solar City got to ask him a couple questions. He was very nice, kind. Um, I think a lot of people have certain ideas of what they read about him on the news, but one-on-one -on -one or, you know, virtually, I mean, he's just a very low-down key person um, and very easy to talk with, which was a really neat experience. Anytime I've heard him on a podcast, I find him very entertaining, very interesting, and uh, his mind is just very quirky. Very it, much so. That, yes. that kind of came out? Yeah, you would see that, you know, here and there. Uh, but, uh, I mean, he was just... Um, 
easy to talk with. I, I remember that experience. It wasn't something where here's Elon at the top and here's this random Solar City girl asking, you know, a question. Very easy to talk with. Now, he's worth $20 billion today, so I guess you knew him when he was poor and maybe only had a few billion. <laughs> exactly. You know, I think um, all those solar panels that I installed on on his roof probably got him to $20 billion. I don't know. Shot him from like three to 20, just like exactly. that. Exactly. You know, so I think that's why he was willing to talk with me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Now, a lot of people say that they just never could go into sales, that sales would crush them. Um mm -hmm. You thrived in sales. Uh, what are the tricks and techniques of sales? Uh, how, how does a person thrive in sales? So, for one, you definitely have to be okay with rejection. You know, um, I started at the very entry level of Solar City where you are generating leads. So, you would have a booth. For example, at a Home Depot or a Lowe's kind of a setting, and you would just try to engage with customers. Hey, how's it going? You know, how much do you pay on your electricity bill? So it's very humbling. Um, but I would say the ways to thrive in sales is talk to top performers in your company. Mm. We're doing very well. And ask some questions. Give them a call. They're very approachable, and they'll tell you what their skills are. Um, so talk to top-level performers. Um, be okay with rejection um, because eventually you're going to get a yes and you just need that yes. Um, and finally, I would say is be approachable, be um, good, have good positive energy and smile. I think if you're having face-to-face -face sales interactions, it's about how friendly and, and if you're smiling, people are willing to talk to a stranger if you come across as a friendly person and that really definitely worked to my advantage. Okay, so be super friendly. Uh, does the product a person is selling make any difference, or is it just the personality of the salesperson? Um, yeah, I would say no. It's not just the personality. The personality will definitely open the door in some ways, but you have to see if there's value um, to the other person for what you're selling. So, you know, if a homeowner didn't have a high electric bill, it didn't matter how friendly I was, they were just not going to buy the product. Um, if I had a homeowner who says, yeah, I do have an expensive electric bill. Um, you seem friendly and nice. I'm going to listen to you. So um, it has to bring value to the other person. Okay. It, it basically has to be a good product or a good service. Absolutely. So um, making sure you follow through with the project um, whenever you're doing a sales transaction. Um, that's one of the biggest things you want to do in sales is, is follow through because that's going to help with more business in the future, how you take care of your customer. Okay, now somewhere in the California era of your life, you got married. I did. So again, I lived at the time with my mom. Um, I was transitioned to Solar City, so I moved to Redlands. Um, and I just wasn't meeting young people. And I think a lot of people can relate. A lot of times in this country, we go to work. We might go to the bar or restaurant with our friends. We don't really meet new people and then go to church on Sundays and then you go home. Um, and so I felt that at the time I just wasn't meeting people who um, shared similar uh, goals and my faith. And so I went online and I went on Catholic Match and um, it worked out that my husband and I met online. 
Well, congratulations. And uh, David's awesome. I've met David. I really enjoyed David. Um, yeah. So then you started working for Bluebird. What is Bluebird and what has this been like? Sure. So um, when David and I got married, I left my job. Um, we moved to Virginia since he was stationed um, in the military there. So that's why I had left my, my career at Solar City. Um, and so when I came back to California, David was deployed. And that position that I had just wasn't, you know, feasible for me to be there in that position anymore. So, again, I made connections um, in Virginia while I was out there. And a gal worked at Bluebird. And Bluebird is a school bus manufacturer. Um, you know, we've been in the business since 1927. And um, I was looking for a sales job again. And she called me up and said, hey, you know, there's a position in California. You should think about it. Um, and I just travel around the West Coast and meet with different districts who are interested in buying a school bus. Do you, um, have you picked up anything new or different about sales working for Bluebird? Sure. So it was a very different experience in Solar City. Um, it was at a higher level, um, you know, sales position in the sense where you look at the margin, what type of a product you're selling. The process of selling was very different than at Solar City. Um, I had to learn definitely new business terminology. And the company is based in Georgia. So when I would fly back to Georgia for meetings, I mean, you're with the CEO, you're with the CFO, with the COO, things that I didn't do at Solar City. So it was, you know, intimidating <laughs> coming into these meetings. And the CEO says, hey, Pam, you know, how's business in the West Coast? And I had to be ready with numbers, data profit. So it was a lot more of a number crunching data collection okay. um, position. So I, it was hard, but I definitely enjoy it. Okay. Um, now I know you also do good things for your church and for your community. What does that involve currently? So um, in California, my local diocese is the Diocese of San Bernardino. Um, when I moved back to California, I um, just met some folks at the diocese. Hey, I'm here to help. Let me know. Um, and so I met a gentleman there at the diocese and a part of the advisory board of the marriage um, council department there in, in, in the diocese. So we do um, talks for marriage prep groups. We do talks for different types of uh, marriage community and for youth as well. So we definitely um, enjoy being part of that, that council. You know, I guess everything comes around. You have this master's in marriage and family and finally it came around. So you actually Absolutely. get to do it. Um, and you have a dream. I'd really love to know what your dream is. Sure. So I moved uh, back to California and, you know, I was exposed to Dave Ramsey after college. And it was um, a very mind-blowing experience to learn about money management, things that we don't really normally learn in, in school or in high school. And in Hispanic culture, you have a lot of people coming from different parts of the world to the U.S., right? They want to achieve the American dream. And in my experience, my family that came from Mexico, they were willing to work hard in this country, you know, work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. But no one really taught my family in, this, in, in, in a general sense of culture how to prosper. How do you save money? How do you invest? And so my dream is to create content. So through YouTube, 
and just create short episodes. So where we teach, you know, people that are coming from another country, hey, how do you save? How do you invest? You know, how do you prepare for retirement? Um, how do you create a will? Or what does life insurance mean? So there's a lot of content, Tim, in English, but there's not as much content or leading voices in Spanish. So that's what I want to do. That's awesome. I hope you get that off the ground. I will promote it to just absolutely everybody Great. I know when you do. Um, okay, so let's step back and look at the big picture. You've reinvented yourself. You moved to Italy. You moved back to California. You moved to Virginia. Kansas City was in the mix there someplace, too. Um, you're just basically not a person who's afraid to try new things. So if a person were, say, 17 or maybe even 22 and bright and ambitious, but kind of afraid to try new things, what would you say to her? Or to him. Yeah, I would say, you know, think about the things that you would like to do, um, whether if it's going to college or going to another country or starting a business or a website. Um, think about all the things that you want to do and choose one of those couple of things and meet people that are doing that. And there's so many people who are willing to talk to you, right, who are in that career or who've done that in the past and what their journey was. So I would say, you know, um, you have to take the first step. Um, you have to be willing just to ask those questions and see how God is opening those doors and take that to prayer also and see, is this something realistically that I should do? Um, ask people who have um, that experience and knowledge of what you want to do and just take them out to lunch and see if this is something feasible. But I would say you have to get out of your comfort zone. Um, that's the one thing I learned is too many times I think we're too afraid of trying new things, but you have to just take the first step and be okay with just taking the first step and see how it goes. And then you kind of get a little comfortable in that first step. Like, okay, I ask questions. It seems like this is doable. Let me take the next step. And that's, I think how it, I've been able to do these different things. It's just, I don't know if this is going to lead to anything, but let me just try it. So do you, that's the advice. Do you feel uncomfortable all the time? Um, I feel uncomfortable a lot of times, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's good is what I'm hearing. It's good and comfortable, yeah. So, um, and, but you've learned, I think because I've tried different things, um, I've learned to be okay with being uncomfortable and not knowing what's going to happen, and that's okay. I think a lot of times we want to know exactly how things are going to materialize before we even begin. And life just doesn't work out that way sometimes, you know. Um, you just have to be okay with going into the unknown and just take it for what it's worth, you know. Just have fun with it. How do you tell a fantasy from a dream? Good question. Um, for me... I make sure that I take it to prayer. So if there's something that I want to do, I take it to prayer and say, God, is this something that you desire for me? And um, in the spiritual sense, you know, I was taught in prayer that God speaks through peace. And so if I felt at peace with a certain decision, then I think that was an indicator for me. Okay, you know, it seems like this is a direction I want to go. And then making sure that you share with trusted friends who know you, know your skills um, and your challenges and your weaknesses and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. What are your thoughts? 
And I think hearing that is going to be beneficial for you to say if this is realistic or not. Okay. Take it to God, take it to friends, and just really, really kind of think about it. Uh, and you said that you'd feel a feeling of peace, but earlier you also said that you're uncomfortable quite a lot. How do you balance sure. peace with being uncomfortable? You have to, I think, think about what is it in your decision that makes you uncomfortable. So write it down. I think sometimes we think about these things in our mind. Like, what is it that you don't feel at peace? And is it because it's just something new? Um, is it something else? So you have to think about what is it that you might feel a little nervous about um, and see if this is something that you can get passed through or not. In your mind, what's a failure? A failure is not doing something that you thought about wanting to do for a long time. I think that's my definition for me. Just It's not necessarily trying something new um, and it not working out. I don't consider that a failure. I've tried a lot of different careers and they've shaped to me to see what kind of a career I want. And I'm thankful for those experiences. But I think a failure is, you know, doing a disservice to yourself and not trying something you've always wanted to do. Mm. So I guess it's better to try and not succeed. That's that's uh, a success to actually just try things instead try of what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. Now let's let's take the flip side on this. Um, some people don't know when to quit. How do you know when it's time to quit or you know, retire? However you want to phrase it. Yeah, or retire. Um, I would say is if you feel like you're constantly coming across hurdles and challenges and in the, you know, for me in the, in the number sense, if you're seeing that you're starting a business and you're not making any revenue, um, and you're actually losing money, then you really have to think about, okay, where can the A cut costs or B, is this just not a good product? And you have to think about that. And again, the second thing would be is making sure that you're talking to friends um, and saying, hey, what do you think about this? Should I stop this or should I try something new? Um, so you have to really think about those two things um, and see if it's, if it's time to, to move forward. Okay. So if I start a business and I just keep going deeper and deeper in debt, and then if I ask my friends and they say, yes, for goodness sake, you should quit, then I probably should quit. Yeah, probably, I would say, or look for a new product or a new need and see. But I, I definitely wouldn't encourage you to keep going into debt uh, if the business is just not going in the, the positive uh, part of the numbers. Reminds me that if I start a weight loss program and I keep gaining weight, I keep gaining weight, I made it's time to abandon the all donut diet. Yeah, probably, point. you know, that I would agree with that, Tim. Okay. Uh, now, a lot of people say follow your passion, and I've said this to high school classes and college classes, and this happens all the time. Half the people look at me with just an absolutely blank stare. And then sure. when I talk to 20 of them, uh, at least 10 of them come back and say, I have no idea what my passion is. And you're saying follow your passion. And so then this kind of was a jolt for me. Then I heard people like billionaire Mark Cuban, and then super famous guy Mike Rowe, the guy who did the Dirty Jobs TV show, they would say that's just the worst advice, that following yeah. your passion is the worst advice. They would say, just look at what people need and bring your passion to that. 
instead. And I just would love to know your thoughts on this follow your passion versus bring your passion question. You know, I think this is an interesting part of living in America. I don't think I heard this type of um, language living in Italy. Um, People, you know, took on a career. Um, It wasn't necessarily something that they loved, but they loved the freedom of just being home with family and and family and that time was more important to them. I think in the U.S., um, there's this sense of pressure where you have to know exactly what you want to do. So a lot of high school, you know, students will be asked, okay, what do you want to do? What do you want to study? You know, what kind of a career? And if a 17-year-old doesn't know that, I mean, that's perfectly okay. You know, I, I don't think I knew at 17 exactly what I'd be doing today in my 30s. Um, and so follow your passion can be um, stressful for a lot of people because we don't, a lot of people don't know what their passion is. I would say um, one of the best things I could have ever done is, um, like I said, trying new things. Um, and then there's a book called Strengths Finder. Okay. And, and through that book, I was able to see what are my strengths um, and what type of careers um, would complement my strengths. And I think that was very beneficial for me to see that, you know, I, as I was navigating into sales, I would have never imagined that. But through that, I've been able to put passion into, into what I do and seeing a need uh, for renewable energy, you know, for cleaner air quality. Um, so some people do know that they want to be doctors and teachers from early on. Um, but I would say for most people, it's, you know, I think it would be finding a need, um, and seeing how you can maximize on that need and offer something for, for, for folks out there. Okay. So be willing to try new things and look around and see what needs are available. Um, and just be open to change basically is is part of what I'm hearing. Uh, okay, so you have reinvented yourself many, many times. Is there something about reinventing yourself that people need to know that maybe they don't know? Reinventing yourself. So, you know, I've been in different positions, so working at a school, um, working at nonprofits, working for profits, and I've met some pretty miserable people. <laughs> Um, who just are miserable with their job and what they're doing. And it's disheartening because for me, it's like, okay, we'll just try something new. You know, what have you thought about? And there's this fear of trying something new. Maybe you have a credential um, in counseling or a degree in something, and you're afraid of leaving that to trying something new. Um, But you know, Matthew Kelly has a saying of people living quiet lives of desperation. And I think it's a true thing. You know, a lot of us experience these seasons in our lives, but um, that's why I think it's important. Prayer is important in your life to see what's going on in your day to day and what God is trying to say in that and seeing if there's time for change. Um, And again, that's why it's important to reach out to friends who are trying different things and getting advice from them of whether you should leave, you know, one thing for another thing and Mm. seeing where it goes. But um, I'm very thankful for all the different things that I've done that have brought me to where I'm at now. Um, But if I stayed where I stayed, you know, in these different 
areas of my life, I, I just don't, I wouldn't want to go through that. You know, I definitely want ready, be willing to try new things. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than be held back by fear. Well, yeah. Pam, this has just been absolutely fantastic. And I just have one more question for you, sure. but if it takes you a half an hour to answer it, I'm cool <laughs> with that. Uh, let's just fast forward to you are now a hundred years old. And you are sitting on the front porch and you are holding your loving husband's hand and uh, you are surrounded by children, grandchildren, all of these wonderful people are just gathered nearby and you are looking back on a great life. Um, what three or four things are you just the most grateful for, the most excited by, the most humbled by? Yeah, that's a very good question. I would say um, in thinking about that, um, I'd be humbled to see my family living their faith, um, and the child, their children and, and great grand and my great grandchildren. Um, I, uh, left with a lady, she was in her eighties a couple of years ago when David was deployed and I didn't want to live on my own and I wanted to save costs and, and renting an apartment in California. She was a devout Catholic lady, daily mass, just super joyful, full of energy. And she recently passed away um, during this whole COVID time. Oh. And she has a huge family. Um, and she would just rejoice in the achievements of her grandchildren, of her children and great-grandchildren. She talked about her family. So I think for me, Tim, it's going to be an honor for me to be 100 years old and see the achievements of my family and the great things that they're doing and encouraging them and being proud of what they've accomplished. Um, I'll be excited to see how me choosing to live my life um, in according to God's plan and my faith and to see that in those generations, I think that'll be humbling and an honor to see them continuing on to live the faith. And I will say that if my husband and I, we love dancing. So if we're still dancing at a hundred, I mean, I think that's going to be pretty awesome. And I'll bet my money on that. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Pamela Caro, thank you so very much. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. It is a human interest podcast. Pam, to me, is just such an incredible person who has done so many incredible things and has traveled all over the world and has met with all kinds of people. I'm just in awe of her, and I'm in awe of all of the people that I've interviewed. So therefore, the greatest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode with your friends. Another big favor you could do for me would be if you would check out my books that are on Amazon. There is Money for Teens, A Guide for Life. There is The Conspiracy of 1869. And there is The Forbidden Book. These are thrillers. Thank you again so much. Until next time.